0: Well, thank you to Matt and this team and all those leading in different capacities, behind the scenes, on the second floor, on the first floor, at home, perhaps, as you're watching remotely. We want to welcome you again to worship. And one of the primary and principal ways that we worship together at Bethel on the whole and in downtown in particular is walking through a book of God's word. We generally speaking like to select an entire book of scripture and then we'll walk all of it just to see what was God speaking to those particular people at a particular time and place written by a particular person for a particular purpose. Once we figure all of that out, then we begin to have actual meaning of what did God intend for them then and there. Once we understand that fully, then we can drop it across time and space into our situation, into our circumstance. And so that's what we want to do as we start our sermon series on the book of 1 John. And again, the the overarching theme of the entire epistle is abiding assurance. And we're gonna talk about that, Lord willing, every week as we walk through this epistle through the month of november lord willing assuming there's still a world in november we pray that there will be so i want to say what i try to say frequently is that apart from context there is no meaning you cannot have meaning apart from context so very briefly very efficiently let me sort of let you know what's going on with the book of first john you might tend to think, well, it's just a little epistle that's there at the back between 2 Peter and 2 John, like I mentioned. And so it's just a quick little letter. "Oh, Oh no, this little fella packs a punch. Some of the most challenging passages of the New Testament are found in this little letter. Virtually everyone agrees that it is written by the Apostle John, who has the coolest nickname in all of scripture. He's the Revelator. Like, if I was gonna get a leather jacket and I was a disciple, it would be the Revelator, not the traitor. That one's right out. I would wanna be the Revelator. John is the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, one of the called twelve disciples, the disciple that Jesus loved. John writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also writes the book of Revelation. Now, we're not exactly sure when John writes this because it doesn't say in the epistle. In fact, John never even mentions himself by name, but all church history pretty well establishes that, yes, this was the apostle, the disciple, John. More than likely, not certain about this, but more than likely, it's it's written at the end of the first century A.D., somewhere around A.D. 95, which means John is as old as coal when he writes this. That's interesting. He writes this, we think, at the end of the first century, where the church is about 60 years old. That's interesting. And it is moved increasingly to the west. Now, we're not told specifically to whom John is writing, but everyone pretty much agrees that he's more than likely writing to what is called the Roman province of Asia that is today Western Turkey, the same area where the seven churches of Revelation would have been found. And what is his purpose? Why is he writing this? Well, we've already said it. They're being affected by persecution from the outside, but much, much, much worse They're being infected by false teaching from the inside and they're beginning to waver and they're beginning to falter. And so this old guy writes them one last letter until he writes them two more. He writes them a letter to give them abiding assurance. That's his purpose. I want to just read this one more time. It's only four verses. The opening to 1 John 1, to 1-4 is what we call the prologue. It's just him getting started. In his gospel, he takes 14 to 18 verses to really get started. Here, it's just four. This is what he says. That which was from the beginning and with his son, Jesus Christ. These are incredible words. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's word. And in these opening four verses, we have the gospel. Oh, it's slightly rearticulated, but it is the gospel. The thing that we say down here all the time, the gospel is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done. He's done it. In Christ to redeem us to Himself and perhaps even more astonishingly to one another. All these people who would ordinarily have nothing to do with one another actually have fellowship, they have been redeemed. And so, the big idea for this passage and for our time remaining this morning is very simply Jesus is, it's His name. He tells them in John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. It's who and what he is. Jesus is. Why is this such a big deal? Because John knew that the churches of that region at that time and in that place were experiencing a whole lot of false teaching. They had all different shapes and sizes. There was Gnosticism, Docetism, Corinthianism. Don't worry about all that. They were trying to say that Jesus was just a good teacher or that he was a nice guy, or that he was a model martyr, or even that he was a good person, but then at his baptism, the Christ descended on him, but at the cross, the Christ departed from him. And John says, no, no, we'll not have it. Jesus is. Now I wanna direct your attention to just a couple quick, very interesting things. The epistle of 1 John, that which was from the beginning, hold up there, tiger. What happened to Paul, an apostle, bringing you greetings and salutations? May you flourish, grow tall, and eat lots and lots of chicken. No, no greeting, no warm hospitality. This is an old guy. This dude can hear his own breath. This dude's got very little time left. And by the way, God uses that. I'm so encouraged. God is not afraid to use whatever means he chooses. This is an old guy who's not gonna waste any time on fluff right to the quick. Not let us pray, let's stand, let's sit. No, no, no. That which was from the beginning. Now, when he says from the beginning, don't over-theologize that. He's not talking about in the beginning of creation or of time. He'll talk about that in verse two. No, he's making an argument against the insidious cancer that is attacking and infecting the church because friends, Doctrine matters. And if you say that doctrine doesn't matter, surprise, that's a doctrine. Doctrine matters massively. It is the thing around which we gather and we cling. And John says, no, 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 no. From the very beginning of the gospel proclamation, from the very beginning of the messianic movement that originates in Nazareth or Bethlehem and then to Jerusalem and all of the Galilee. It was always him. It's always been him from the very beginning of this messianic movement. Now, you might wanna use 1 John 1.1 as a defense of his eternality. You don't have to. John's gonna cover that for us in verse two. Just know that which was from the beginning. It's John declaring that Jesus has always been who Jesus is. Is he didn't somehow become the Christ at some moment in time, and we need to know that because John is telling us something that really is massively meaningful at the every single day, moment by moment aspect of our lives. Jesus is, most of us don't really care. By Tuesday, we're mad at the world. We're mad at our spouse, we're mad at our kids, we're mad at our boss, we're mad at ourselves. We're just fed up and <laughs> because we have forgotten that Jesus is. And this is this old guy's last shot. I wanna, I wanna explain to you, John's probably 95, 96 years old by this point. He hasn't seen Jesus for 60 years. And this brother is holding fast. We know that one of the emperors of Rome had him boiled alive in oil and he didn't die. We know that his biological brother was killed in Acts chapter 12. And so he has slept on for 60 some odd years, experienced exile on the island of Patmos where there's no fresh water. And he was dying in a pile, longing for the fellowship. And so this old guy says, I got one more missive, one more message. Jesus is. Whatever circumstance comes at you by this afternoon, by Thursday afternoon, Jesus is. That's what John wants to get our attention. From the beginning. And John uses some very interesting language. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him with our hands. From the very beginning, as soon as he called us, we had breakfast. Oh, he cooks the best fish. You wouldn't believe the fish that this Jesus cooked. We ate it. We heard him, we saw him, we touched him. Now that sounds like, okay, John's trying to make a point. Oh, no, no, no. It's much, much more than that. We're pretty sure that John is in Ephesus when he writes this. Those three things is literally legal language. It is the language technically of ancient jurisprudence, we might say. This is a testimony that one would give in a court of law. John is saying, I swear to God, I experienced his life, this old guy finished well. This old guy was over 100 years old, church tradition tells us. He literally, we think, brought Mary, mother of Jesus, to Ephesus and cared for her because Jesus said, that's now your mother. They would carry him in a chair in to preach into his early 100s, until he finally died. And his last message, after not having seen Jesus, except for the revelation vision on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus is, and he wants us to absolutely know that. Then we're gonna go to verse two, very quickly. The life was made manifest. In John's gospel, he gives a prologue that said, in the beginning was the word, the logos. I want you to imagine, if you can for a moment, all the energy, the gravity, the force, the light, the heat, the the mass of the universe became a person, a human being who laid down his life to die for the undeserving. Now that's his message in the gospel of John, but here he's talking about the word of life. And what he means is the message of life. And this is the distinguisher between what John's going to say and any other system of belief or religion in the world. He's not a way to get to the life. It's him. This is the difference between every other religion in existence. You have to do something. But John says, no, it's him. It's a person. He is life itself. He continues on here, verse two. The life was made manifest. We have seen it out of nowhere, for no reason, although it was prophesed and, promised and prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, wasn't what we expected. He showed up and he called my name in Galilee, where I was a knuckle-dragging fisherman And now I'm a 96-year-old dude in Ephesus telling you that Jesus is this life, the Godhead veiled in flesh. Now we see. Hark, the herald angels sing. They should write a song about that. That's really good. We testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life. There was never a time when he was not. See, in the early part of the church, a heretic named Arius made a little praise and worship song, and it went like this There was a time when he was not. And they would pull out their phones and they'd turn on their lights and they would sway. There was a time when he was not. And the church said, No, that's heresy. Put your phones away because they don't exist yet. No, there was never a time when he was not eternally existing with the Father. Now, that's really important. He's not a prophet, a rabbi, a teacher, a martyr. That's super significant which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. I want you to understand what John is doing here. He's giving us the gospel. The life existed eternally, but it entered into our reality. Why? Because I was the best fisherman on the northern side of the Galilee. No, because I had uh, the most awesome sideburns. No, it just manifest to us. It entered into our reality. It invaded our sin. Has that ever happened to you or to me? The first two verses John gives us are simply an explanation of the enormity of what has happened. Verses 3 and 4 are the effect. Because of what God has done, because of who Jesus is and Jesus is, verses 3 and 4 are the effect, the payoff, the so what and the now what, we might say. Verse 3 that which we have seen and heard. It's almost like John wants you to know that Jesus is, that he touched him, he enjoyed him, he experienced him. Verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, we there meaning the apostles, the disciples, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, some of you who have been around church a little long enough will know that Fellowship is this fun, wonderful, churchy word. The Greek term is koinonia. It's where we get our word for coinage. That thing that we have in common, the currency between us, that with which we can buy and sell, barter and trade is our coinage, our currency. The fact that Jesus is, is our currency and our coinage. Now, brethren and sistren, if I'm being be so bold, Most of us don't look at one another in this room, on the second floor, on the first floor, maybe in your den, sitting at home. And we don't think of one another that way. But this is an absolute enormous thing that we are to understand, this fellowship. John wants us to understand, you can have fellowship with us. What does he mean? He means the apostles. Why is that such a big deal? Why do I care to have a fellowship with the apostle? Don't you see what John's doing? John says, I have firsthand knowledge and I have fellowship with God the Father through the Son. I actually have this and you can as well. Although it be secondhand, you can have fellowship with God because of what I'm telling you. What's the big deal about an apostle? Well, we know from Corinthians and Galatians that an apostle is someone who has seen the risen Lord Jesus and received direct instruction, information, and charge. And Paul says, you can have fellowship with us and we have it with the Father and the Son. Fellowship, we have something in common with God. You looked in a mirror lately, but in the mind of God, you do. And what's even more incredible and scandalous, the greatest thing possible in the cosmos is that you and I could possibly have fellowship with God, but a very, very close second is that we could actually have fellowship with one another. Not Gentile, not Greek, not male, not female, not free nor slave. Our coinage, our currency, our fellowship is the fact that Jesus is. This is it. This gathering was around this. This gathering was about the fact that Jesus is. It had nothing to do with any other political movement or upheaval had nothing to do with anything social or economic or even educational except for the fact that these people who gathered around the gospel, whose identity and fellowship was Jesus is, were then and only then remarkably influential and impactful in their society and community. It's the whole reason the gospel's called the gospel. These people who were Christians, were adopting the literally discarded and the Germanic peoples of the Roman Empire would see this and go, why are you taking them into your home at your own expense? Why would you do that? That's costly. That's sacrificial. Why would you do that? That puts you at risk. And the Christians would say to these Germanic tribes of the Roman Empire who were coming into the area that is modern Turkey, because that's my story. That's what God did for me. He manifested Himself. He made Himself known. He adopted me. Not only that, He forgave me. Not only that, He made me an heir. Not only that, He calls me son and friend. And the Germanic peoples would say, "Woo, das ist Gutspiel." That's a good story. It's Gutspiel. It's gospel. It's a great story, because of who Christians were. That drove what they did, and if we flip that, we miss it entirely. Well, verse four, we're not gonna spend a whole lot of time here on verse four. Just draw this out. John says something really fascinating. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's fascinating. This old guy, John says, I am writing this. I can hear my own rattle and I'm writing this to you churches in the western part of what is modern Turkey so that our, the apostles, look around, John. They're all dead. They're all gone. You can read the accounts. None of them died in hospice. Matthew is cut in half with an axe. Mark is dragged through the streets of Alexandria until he's dead. Thomas is speared and crucified in India and on and on and on. James is thrown off of the temple, beaten with garden tools. John says, you know what would make us tickled pink, and that's in the Greek, is that you would have abiding assurance. Now, that's incredible. Three quick implications from 1 John's prologue. Just these first four verses, three quick impactful implications. Number one, coming out of the big idea that Jesus is, let me amplify and extend. Jesus is God. That's implication number one. He's not a comic book superhero. He doesn't swoop in with a cape and save the day. If that's your vision of God, that's okay. There's grace for that. But that kind of being doesn't exist. Stop praying to it. He's not a hero. He is God. The logos, gravity, light, and heat, all together in a person. Jesus is God. He's not just a great teacher, a rabbi, not a revolutionary nor a rebel. He is God. All that that means is available to us. And if that's true, and it is it simply logically intellectually must change every single thing about us he doesn't sit on our soul on our shoulder and grant wishes that's gazoo from the flintstones and he's not real either he's god and if it's true that your identity is in christ when god looks at you he only sees jesus and what's more massively radically insane, is that his spirit indwells you. You're in the son, the spirit is in you, and the father loves us. I know we like to sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, but guess what? It's the father that sent the son to adopt you. The father's crazy about you. Jesus is. Jesus is God. Second point, Jesus is grace. <laughs> Some of you, you just heard that, maybe you read it on screen and went, yeah, no, I know, Jesus is great. No, you don't. Neither do I. Because you and I still have this fallenness, this fleshiness, that we still think it's somehow up to us. I mentioned it already, Christianity is the only religion where it is finished. There's only two religions in the cosmos. Did you know that? That which has been done for you, And everything else, I don't care what you want to call it, Shaoism, Taoism, Shintoism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, radical Orthodox Judaism, it's all about what you have to do. You are responsible. But praise God, there is a God. And he says, no, 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 no. I get this one. Jesus is grace. Did you see what John said in the first two verses? He manifests himself to us We didn't go hiking through the forest, find a special golden key and go and unlock a bunch of secret doors and yeah, there he is. No, that's what the Gnostics were teaching in Ephesus and John said, no, no, there's no secrets. He manifests himself to us. While we were yet sinners, the father loved us and sent the son and he died undeservingly for the undeserving. Jesus is grace. Let me say this more specifically. (laughs) He likes you. for who you are. Not as you should be. Not even as you could be. And he knows you more deeply, more delicately, more completely than you do. And he likes you More than you do. Oh, he knows who we were created to be, but he's also quite aware of the fall and the effect of sin so much that he became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. He likes you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together, to clean your house so that he can come in. Oh my gosh. By the way, that ought to inform how we treat one another. I'll accept her, I'll accept him when they get their stuff together. What? Is that how you came to Jesus? And if you think you did, Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is grace. Thirdly, Jesus is the gospel. I don't mean he's the singular content of the gospel. I mean, it's him. The good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself. Oh, and to one another. This is what he has done, this is who he is. He has come to save mankind. Now, this is where I wanna get as intensely practical as I can. Many of you believe that that's true, that Jesus has done this and you live your life like it's true. But some of you in this room on the second floor, on the first floor, listening remotely, have only ever wanted that to be true. You've really, really, really wanted it to be true, but you don't actually believe that Jesus is God who became flesh, who lived sinlessly, perfectly, in thought, word, and deed, and he died undeservingly, innocently, was nailed to a cross, and he died and he was buried for three days, and on the third day he rose again, was seen by hundreds, on the 50th he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God and he's coming again. Many of you really, really want that to be true, but you don't believe it. Somebody a long time ago tried to sell you that and tried to convince you that you should want that to be true. And you went, well, I'd rather that be true than go to hell. And so you said some words. But belief is like the sunrise. <laughs> Somebody this morning on one of these floors or listening remotely, it's going to dawn. It's going to rise in your soul. You're going to believe it like, wait a second. That's it. That's it. I don't have to. No, stop. No, no, no. Let it dawn. Let it rise. He's God. He is God. He is grace. He is the gospel. He manifests to you and to me undeservingly. He is a person, not a policy, not a procedure, not even a pathway. He's a person. And I love him. He's the goods. Now, if that's true, and it is, There's a subtle message happening in John's prologue, and I don't want us to miss it. I'm a little bit long, but you should have been here last week. The fact that any of you are here this week, that's grace as well. There's a subtle little message that's happening in John's prologue, and I don't want us to miss it. I want to remind you, John's an old man. This moves me. John is an old man. His stated purpose for this whole book is so that readers can have joy and assurance while they are abiding together in the life of Jesus in fellowship. And here at the end of the passage, verse four, I'm gonna circle back to that now. He says, I am writing this so that his joy could be complete. Now I admit it, you hear that, I hear that, and we go yada yada, churchy stuff, Bible language, I don't understand much of it, it's okay, and we dismiss it. Oh, but please don't miss what John is doing here. It's essential for us to carry with us as we walk out of wherever we are. I want to be very clear. John would not use the word I'm about to use. He did not use the word I'm about to use. It would not have been available to him. It didn't exist in their understanding. But the word that I want to use is, in a sense, addiction. What you're getting from John is that he is addicted to the fellowship. His greatest joy. What is joy? That feeling of pleasure and fulfillment. Joy is merely the outcome of fulfillment. What does John say? I'm writing this to you so that our, well, that's me, there's nobody left, so that my joy would be complete. John, as an old guy, is addicted to the fellowship. What is an addiction? Wanting more of that thing that makes you feel good. And never, ever being quite able to get enough. Some of you know very immediately what I'm talking about. And every other form of addiction in this world will kill you and crush you. It's an idol. But the Bible in the New Testament makes this scandalous claim that you and I can and, in fact, are invited into being addicts of the fellowship. Yes, with God, of course. But strangely and surprisingly, more intensely, we are invited to be addicts of the fellowship, but I just can't get enough. I just want more. I just want more. Is that the way most people, you know, think about their church? (laughs) No, it's, I should probably go because then God will bless me maybe, but he hasn't lately. So eh. what John is after is that we would be addicts of the fellowship and just want more of it. I don't know if you saw me. I was in a flop sweat by 9.15 walking around the taco bar just seeing people. I was about to totally twitch out down there because there's people. There's people. And as far as I know, they all agree that Jesus is and they love him. And so they tolerate one another because there's tacos. But I know my heart explodes when I see people talking to one another. I used to think it was unhealthy, that I felt that strongly about the fellowship. And then I read 1 John, and this old guy says, you know what would make me just burst with joy? Is if you people became free basing addicts of the fellowship. How about that? I want you to imagine, and I mean this, I want you to really imagine what would it be like if you and I became addicts of the fellowship? Do you think church hopping takes on a whole different idea? Do you think, ah, I'm sleepy, ah, football season started? Huh? Ah. No, 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 no. Try to keep me away from the fellowship. I'm an addict. I can't get enough of it. I promise you, Christian, <laughs> that's what eternity's gonna be like. Ever increasingly, you and I are growing in our capacity to experience him and not just him, but to experience him through Hannah. Ha <laughs> That's amazing! I get to experience him through Matt McGill. Oh! <laughs> Forever and ever, I just can't get enough. But for some of you, maybe this morning, you're still merely wanting it to be true, but it hasn't dawned. So we don't do this very often around here, like ever. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And we're going to let the Spirit do what the Spirit's going to do here, second floor, first floor, at home, remotely. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to have a song we're going to worship together. We're going to have fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this morning, for your word, for your spirit, and yes, for your people. Change our hearts. Father, change mine. Move us from tolerating one another to being addicts of one another. Not reckless consumers and users of one another. No, of course not. But because your son Jesus is and because of what he has done, who you have declared us to be, would you ratchet up our fanaticism for the fellowship? Father, for any that are in this place, in this location in Tyler, Texas, or who are watching remotely, if there are some who have merely wanted this to be true because the alternative is too horrible to think about, would you dawn in their lives like the sun rising in the east, and would they believe just live naturally and supernaturally, as though it were true because it is. Would you give them a spark of joy that begins and ever increasingly grows as it's nourished and fed from the fellowship? Would you give them courage to speak with someone they know or love or trust, one of our deacons or elders or other ministry leaders or pastors, a spouse, (laughs) a child, a parent, a friend and neighbor, maybe even a church member? Father, would you increase our tent, as it were, because of what you have done in Christ. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.